0: Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Mark Kramer, author of six books and former Wharton School professor, is the executive director of the Private Investors Forum, which educates entrepreneurs on how to raise money and introduces them to angel investors. Mark is a national columnist for American City Business Journal and is a former Inc. Entrepreneur of the Year. He has a master's in management from Penn State University and a BS in broadcast journalism from West Virginia University. Mark, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us about the Private Investors Forum and how it got started?
1: Well, back in 1989, I was running Penn State's Technology Development Center. And my companies that I was working with, I was working with all startups, were looking for investors. And angel investors really didn't exist as a way for you to go in contact. And nobody knew who they were. And the only people you could go to were venture capitalists. And venture capitalists, Even back then, still wanted to see some revenue. They were looking to invest much larger chunks of money. So I wanted to start an angels group that entrepreneurs could actually contact and pitch in front of. So I started something called the Pennsylvania Private Investors Group in 1990, which was the country's first formally organized investor angels network. And then in late 90s, they changed the name to the Private Investors Forum. And 22 years ago, they started the Angel Venture Fair, which brings together the tri-state area's angel investors to meet with entrepreneurs that come from all over the country to look at investing in their startups. And startups can be in any area that's scalable. So they're not limited to just technology because we've had companies like Evil Genius Beer, Ana Ono, who provides undergarments for women with breast cancer. We've had companies that have medical devices, software, it goes across the board.
0: So, you briefly touched on this. For people that don't know, what is an angel investor and how does that differ from a VC? Well, angel investors
1: have existed probably, there's been an economy, right? The Spanish royal family was an investor in Columbus and they were angel investors. There's always been angel investors, but angel investors are wealthy people who are willing to invest in startup companies. Most of these angel investors don't typically come from old money. They are themselves entrepreneurs who've made a lot of money, and now they want to reinvest in other entrepreneurs. They feel like it's giving back at the same time allows them to make significant money.
0: And how do they differ from a venture capital firm or VC firm? So venture capitalists get their money from wealthy individuals, institutions,
1: pension funds, corporations. They're called institutional alternative money managers. That's what a venture capitalist is. And no different than somebody who invests in equity stocks or buys bonds, except these people take your money and invest in companies. And most venture capitalists today invest in companies that have a couple million or more in revenue unless it's in the biotech area where it could take 10 years or more until revenue is actually producing. So the difference is angels use their own personal money. Venture capitalists use other people's money.
0: So does an angel investor have a seat at the table, or is it more of a passive investment?
1: It can be both. A lot of angels like to be on the boards of the companies that they invest in. and also depends if the companies have directors and liability insurance. If they don't, they might serve on the advisory board of the company. But in many cases, a lot of angel investors like to on the board and contribute more than just the money. They're hoping that with their experience and contact, that they can help the company grow rapidly.
0: And are the business owners, are they excited about this, that they give someone with their unique experience a seat at the table, or do they more want to just retain control, or does it go both ways?
1: Every entrepreneur I've ever met always wants to maintain control. They're always worried about giving up more than 51% of the company, when yet some of the greatest entrepreneurs ever have always had minority positions. I can't think of any hugely successful company, where, including Microsoft, Facebook, you name it, where the entrepreneur owns 51% of the company. Now, you could own a significant amount of voting shares because there could be different classes of shares, preferred shares and common shares. But for the most part, in the very beginning, entrepreneurs usually always end up owning more than the majority of stock until they keep growing at such a rapid rate that more money needs to come in mm-hmm. and they have to sell more of their stock but at that point the shares might go from a dollar to 50 dollars a share and you're thrilled to give up more of your shares to sell to keep growing your company or for liquidity purposes
0: so how did you make the leap from sports writer to serial entrepreneur well,
1: I was going to be a career sports writer. I did for five years. And then I met my wife. And I realized that if I wanted to have a family, that I had to kind of give that up because the travel was so great. The divorce rate was so high among sports writers. The money wasn't great. So I had to put that off to the side. And I always had an aptitude for business. i would always been starting side businesses to make money. So the leap for me wasn't that great. I missed being a sports writer. I wanted to be a sports writer because my grandfather was a business owner, my dad was a business owner, and I saw how hard they worked and all the hours that we were on vacation. I'm thinking, God, that's not for me at all. I don't want to be doing that. I like the idea that I get to go to games for free and actually talk to the athletes and interview them. So I thought that was super cool. But then the reality of, What do you really want more? Do you want a family with children or do you really want to be on the road all the time and not really get to know them and see everything kind of fall apart? So I had to make a choice.
0: So why do you love working with small companies and startups? A guy of your expertise, you figure you could walk into any company and be on the board or have a legitimate position at a larger firm. Why small companies and startups?
1: Well, I like the creativity of a startup. I like in the beginning where there's no politics, that you have an idea, and you want to see if that idea can work. Like I'm working on a new venture now called Funding Organizer, where it's a common app for applying for commercial bank loans. And I wrote this plan. I had a developer develop it. We're now starting to ask bankers to take a look at the product that we developed, this online service. And to me, it's like unwrapping Christmas gifts every day. I mean, it's so cool to go and develop an idea and launch it. In fact, that's my favorite part is developing and launching, not so much running it. So when I'm around entrepreneurs, I'm so excited by their enthusiasm, their resilience, their creativity. And I'm jacked up just my medium. Like I read an Inc. magazine at Fast Company and Entrepreneur. And when I read the stories of other entrepreneurs, I can't read it before I go to bed or I can't sleep because I just think it's so exciting to be a part of this. So when you meet entrepreneurs who started with nothing and built significant companies, it's really an incredibly impressive feat.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like having a coffee for you for most people where you read that magazine and you're all jacked up, right?
1: Yeah. Trust me. I need no drugs or alcohol. (laughs) I'm shot right out of the cabin at like 5 a.m. in the morning.
0: You get up at 5 a.m. every morning?
1: Yeah. I get up like between 5 and 5.30. I start reading. Then I go to the gym by 6 o'clock. And I typically work from 7 o'clock to like 9, 10 o'clock at night, six days a week.
0: What day do you take um, off?
1: Saturday. And even Saturday, I will read like business stuff. So I don't think of it as work. I used to think that I was like a workaholic, but no, I found that for me, it's like going out and playing tennis or somebody loving to play golf. And I just happen to love coming up with business ideas, developing them and working on them and working with entrepreneurs, helping them realize their dreams. At the end of the day, when you see the companies get started that you've helped support in some way, shape or form, and they've created jobs, and people get employed, you feel like you're doing something for your region and your country that's making a difference. So I never got the privilege of serving in the military, but I feel like for me, this is my way of serving the country.
0: Are any of the companies that you helped, are any of them unicorns? Well,
1: over the course of my career, I worked with a company called Cephalon, And when I started the Pennsylvania Private Investors Group, that was one of our early investments. So like the angels invested in them and they became a multi-billion dollar company and sold out. So there have been some companies like that. I mean, we have some hot looking companies in the region now, like Evil Genius Beer. That's taking off beautifully. We have InstaMet that just sold for 500 million. They went through the angel venture fair as well. Some of the companies raise money and some of the companies don't, but the exposure is good for them and it helps them raise money. They learn that improve their competitive position.
0: So can you tell us about the Angel Venture Fair and the membership process?
1: So companies apply online to the Angel Venture Fair. Depending on the time you apply, the application fee starts at $99. And over the course of three months, so like the application process in December, and we ended at the end of February, beginning of March, and so I, from December through the first week of February, ninety nine dollars. Then it goes to 150, then it goes to 199. But when I started it, I thought to myself, if entrepreneurs are spending that kind of money, we should do more than just evaluate the company and decide if they get to present at selection day. So you apply. We have judges. We have 85 judges that take a look at these companies. And then we decide who gets to be invited to something called selection day where we narrow down usually from 150 to 200 companies to 60 companies. And then we narrow that down to 34 companies. And then those 34 companies present at the angel venture fair. Now this year, the fair has been postponed from April 30th to September 11th. And what happens there is it's at the union league. And if you go to angelventurefair.com, you can see video of past angel venture fairs, and we have three to 400 angel investors and or conduits to angel investors, venture capitalists, family offices that hear 10-minute presentations in two conference rooms and then get to walk the ballroom of the Union League and go to the different booths of the different companies and talk to the entrepreneurs and then decide if they want a second meeting. Our record for second meetings, on average and the average I've been running, it, which is 11 of the 22 years, is that 93% of the companies have gotten the second meeting. Right. We have no control over whether they get investment because you could have a year where everybody gets an offer and turns it down. You can have another year where everybody gets an offer and accepts it. You can have an off- a year where only two or three people accept it. On average, 10% of the companies that present end up getting financing which is pretty significant considering only two-tenths of a percent typically are able to raise money.
0: So who would be a good fit for the Angel Venture Fair? What type of business?
1: So any business that has an idea that they're ready to market now or have started to market, and they've gained a little bit of traction, and they're looking for something less than three to five million in investment and that investors could own anywhere from twenty to thirty percent. It's very much like Shark Tank. And I encourage every entrepreneur to watch Shark Tank because all the right questions are asked there. The negotiation for deals is pretty much as it is when you're dealing with angel investors. So any company that's scalable, you know, sometimes we'll get somebody who wants to open up on a skateboard shop. And that's not very scalable unless they have plans that they've developed a unique skateboard and that they're going to open up locations throughout the country. So the companies need to be scalable because as an angel investor, you're hoping for a home run. If you wanted to make conservative investments, you'd buy REITs, mutual funds, individual stocks of proven companies. But here, you're hoping for the gold, like the investors who invested in First round capital, a venture fund out of Philadelphia. First round put in five hundred thousand of their investors' money in Uber. And that five hundred thousand is worth between nine and eleven billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So think if you were an investor in that fund, how much money you're gonna get from when they take Uber public.
0: Does Philly have a large group of entrepreneurs? Because so often you hear about the big startups on the West Coast, particularly California and the Valley?
1: We have a fairly significant number of entrepreneurs because we have a good ecosystem here between the colleges and universities, the healthcare market here, our proximity to New York and DC. So we have a pretty significant amount of entrepreneurs, but we haven't had nearly the success and should have that Silicon Valley or now Austin, Texas. I mean, I've been to Austin, Texas. And I have to say, I'm underwhelmed by Austin compared to Philadelphia. And it reminds me of a secondary city in Pennsylvania. So I'm amazed about that. But yet Austin is considered like a major hub for startup companies. And yet they we have University of Texas. We have 83 colleges and universities here. 20% of the doctors in the United States rotate through here. And we have significant amounts of, R&D money that flow through both the colleges and the private sector here. And we have Comcast here. So we should be much further along. Philadelphia was much more powerful in the late 80s and early 90s than it is right now. But you are starting to see some companies like Spark Therapeutical, and as I mentioned, Instamed, who had significant liquidity events. There's one company that does insurance software, and that company sold for over a billion dollars. So you are seeing, I don't know what you're hoping for, but there's entrepreneurs who leave, who sell those companies, reinvest in other companies in the Philadelphia region.
0: So we're doing this interview on Friday, March 20th. We're in the middle of the coronavirus or COVID-19 outbreak. How do you see this affecting the economy?
1: Well, I think that nobody's ever experienced this, I guess, since the Black Flag hit Europe, right? Because the entire economy is on standstill. I mean, thank God the internet exists or it would be really catastrophic. I mean, at least a good chunk of us can work and do business with other people and universities can still teach kids and they're able to do it online. So thank God for that. But when you consider that nobody can go to a conference and network with other people to do business together and you consider that tourism is totally dead around the world, not just here but around the world and all the people who go to bars and restaurants and museums and hotels. New York, the Hilton closed. It's the first time ever they've ever closed. They have 1,800 rooms that are sitting empty. So it's really catastrophic and we don't know what the end looks like. We're hoping that as the warm weather comes, this will change and people will be able to go back to work. But right now, Nobody really knows for sure. This could last through the summer, but we're hoping that that won't be the case. I'm hopeful that by sometime in mid-May, this will subside and they'll start coming back. I think there'll be great opportunities for people, as there always is, in a tragedy like this. Because like online learning, great opportunities. People for doing seminars, great opportunities. Concerts being done online and people paying to watch a rock group a concert maybe even from their own studio we need to be creative and come up with new business opportunities that will employ them not just for the money which is the most important but just for people's sanity
0: so let's assume your theory's right we peak out in, in mid-may and we start to come down do you think it'll be a quick rebound
1: i don't think it'll be a quick rebound i think that it's going to probably take unfortunately six months to a year. Because think about this, and this is where we're hurt at the Angel Venture Fair. The stock market has gone down to the point that all of President Trump's success has been wiped out in two weeks. Think about that, two weeks, wiped out almost four years of work, which is incredible. And so angel investors are relying on the excess capital they have to invest. So if a big chunk of that has disappeared, Where's the money going to come from to invest in these startups? But I do think if once they get it and the market starts to rebound, people will start to feel positive. But even in 2008, we didn't experience anything like this with the entire economy. Well, most of the economy shut down. obviously Amazon is still operating, and people are still doing some manufacturing of products and goods, and grocery stores are open, pharmacies are open but a lot of this other stuff isn't. So I think it's going to take a while. The good thing is it wasn't structural to the economy like the banks were. So it might be easier to make a quicker rebound, and it all depends on how smart the government is and do they get the smartest minds around the table to figure out how they could do this quickly.
0: So, Mark, you have access to the sharpest minds in the region Including yourself, are people such as yourself, are you buying, selling, staying on the sideline to wait it out?
1: I myself took my own portfolio from a five, that's the most risky, to a two, which is what my eighty one year old mother is, a little over two weeks ago, where I could cash out because I want to wait till it hits bottom and then reinvest back into the market again. And I've got my own ventures, like As I mentioned, I have a new venture called Funding Organizer, which is to help loan officers speed up the process of obtaining information from business applicants looking for loans and make it easier for applicants to put their information together. I was really excited about this new opportunity, but how many loans are going to be happening over the next six months? So that is going to take a back burner. I have another venture called Bank Marketer to market banks, create business networks for banks. It might be called the Wells Fargo Business Network. And the first Friday of every month, we would have seminars at all the bank branches, so a way to monetize the branches, but at the same time, educate entrepreneurs on how to grow the business and create more loan opportunities for the banks. Well, now, you can't do that either because you can't get people together in the same room. So those kinds of things end up being put on hold, and I'm not the only one that has ventures that require people to be able to get together in order to consummate business. So for me, I put money on the side to take advantage of the market when it rebounds. Because in 2008, I left my personal money in there. I took all my kids and sold out before the market dropped. And my financial partners thought I was nuts because the market was booming. But I could tell that there were structural things wrong because I was running a financial services company. And I'd put all my kids' money in cash And it turned out to be a smart thing because I was able to pay their entire education, room, board, tuition, travel, spending money, and not have to borrow any. But my own portfolio, it took over a decade to get back. Mm. And when you think about it, it's like binge eating over a weekend. You gain seven pounds over the weekend. Mm -hmm. But how long does it take to lose that weight? You gained it in two days, but it could take you three months to lose that same seven pounds. So... Even if the market were to go from twenty thousand and change to twenty nine thousand in let's say three months, that doesn't mean your personal portfolio goes right back to where it was before. You might only see a twenty percent enhancement of your own portfolio, not a hundred percent enhancement.
0: What industries do you think will have the greatest negative impact, and why?
1: Clearly, restaurants, bars, hotels. The airlines. My daughter flew to her mother in Florida two days ago, and there were only 10 people on the plane. Mm -hmm. And great for her because she wasn't getting grieved on or coughed on by anybody, but obviously bad for the airlines. And when you hear that the airlines are canceling 50,000 flights a day, you can imagine that their ability to survive is going to be dependent on the government bailing them out, like they have to do GM because the tidal wave of Bankruptcies for all the people who support them. I think all the people who make food that goes on the planes and the people who get cleaning contracts, all these different folks. They're all going to take a tremendous hit. And drugs are going to take longer to develop because if you have to keep people away from each other in these laboratories and there's not enough masks and everything else to go around, that's going to stunt the growth. So that's why I don't think there's an industry that's not going to get hit by this. Well, I think the ones that are going to rebound the fastest, ironically, are gonna be the ones that are being hit the hardest because once people can come back out, you'll see the restaurants and bars and everything flooded in a short period of time. In the beginning people will still be somewhat risky but pretty quickly, everybody will be coming back because they've been locked up for so long.
0: You pointed out airlines and if you recall during the Great Recession, there was a consolidation of banks. That the government essentially held everyone's hand for. Do you think that's what's going to happen to the airline industry? There's only going to be two or three key players when this is all said and done.
1: Well, I think that the government is going to be having a balancing act here because if they do that, that means less competition and it's going to be much more expensive and that could be more as damaging to the airlines. Now the good thing for the airlines is the price of the oil has gone down tremendously. So if they were able to stockpile gas now, they'll be able to get some pretty nice margin differential once the market comes back because the price of a barrel of oil is $20 as of yesterday. And if you think about it, now is probably a time to go buy futures on oil because certainly it's not going to stay at $20 forever. So that's probably a good buy right now for people.
0: So with the economy slowing down, do you think we'll see fewer startups in the short-term future? And will it be more difficult for them to get funding?
1: It will definitely get be more difficult to find because there's going to be less cash out there for them to act. So that's going to be a problem. I think there are going to be people who are just going to feel that I still have this idea. I still think it has great potential or I've lost my job because of the downsizing of these companies. I've got to do something. So I think you'll see a large number of people looking to start new companies using their personal savings. Remember, most entrepreneurs are not under the age of 30. The average age of an entrepreneur is between 40 and 50. So those folks typically have some money put away and they're looking to go and start something. And it could be from a scalable business to a consulting opportunities, creating their own consulting business, part-time, full-time. So I think that once the handcuffs of the coronavirus are taken off, people will be anxious to get things rolling again. It's just going to take a little bit longer because there's less money to be spent. And what you're hoping is is that the CFOs of these companies start whacking numbers so much that it 1999 happens all over again. You know when Alan Greenspan said irrational exuberance, immediately CFOs took that as a cue to start cutting expenses. And if your neighbor across the street and you start cutting, you're basically bludgeoning yourself to death and there's nothing left. So, hopefully, the government's going to be talking to them about trying to mitigate the number of people they let go. Like, a toy company had 175 employees and they let 15% of their workforce go. I kind of think they need to encourage companies to not let people go but to reduce everybody's salaries, to keep everybody on board. In the early 90s, I was running a venture and the economy took a hiccup and I told my employees, I had about 30 of them, and I said, we have two choices here. I could go and, and let go five of you, or all of us could take a pay cut, and everybody gets to keep their job. Now, for them, they didn't know if they're one of the five. So they all voted for, yeah, we'll all take a pay cut.
0: Mark, thank you for joining us today. We know you're a busy guy, and we know there's a lot going on. Where can we get your books, and where can we find out more about the fair?
1: So... You can find out about the fair by going to angelsnaturefair.com and you can find out more about my book by just going on Amazon and typing in my name, Mark Kramer, or going to my website, Kramer Communications. Frankly, I'm very optimistic that the smartest people in the world are sitting in this country, and they're going to figure it out. They always do. No matter what it is, they always figure it out. And this will get figured out faster than most people think, and it won't be as bad as people thought it would be. And we'll be back on our feet quicker. And I'm not just saying that's an optimist. I just think it's been the history of this country. Anytime we've had something catastrophic because of the mix of minds and cultures, somehow we always figure it out. And that helps the rest of the world.
0: Thanks, Mark. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.